again my welcome to PLE's. My name is Liam, one of the pastors here. It's my joy to be uh, bringing God's word this morning. This is a, the fourth sermon in a series, a doctrinal series on the church. And today, very conveniently, we're answering the question, why get baptized? Uh, let's bow our heads and let's pray together and ask God for help in understanding what we're coming to just now. Our Father, uh, we do uh, ask that you would reveal to us and teach us by your spirit these wonderful things in your word that we might not only be clearer in our understanding, but have our hearts burn uh, more with love for you. Uh, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Jude Bellingham was unveiled as a Real Madrid player last week. Made the wrong choice, should have joined Man United, but never mind. Uh, as I watched the press conference last week, or highlights of it, I couldn't help but think about baptism. Let me explain why. The club held a press conference, as you can see here, to publicly announce his signing. Bellingham himself gave public testimony for why he chose Madrid, wrongly. And the club handed him a number five shirt, Zidane's number of all numbers, a public gesture that said, you're part of this team. And that's why I was thinking about baptism. Now, some of you are like, what on earth are you on? That is, there is no connection there whatsoever. Well, I think there is. I mean, switch out Real Madrid for the local church and Bellingham for the believer, and what do we have? Well, a local church holding a gathering to publicly announce a believer's transfer, not from one club to another, but from one kingdom to another, and then you have a believer giving public testimony, telling us why they've chosen to join, either like they have done here in public testimony or will do in the pool later when they say, I do. And lastly, we have a local church offering the public sign that says, you're part of the team. Not a shirt, but a baptism in water. Now, I'm hazarding a guess, but I don't think many of us have thought of baptism that way. That's all right. It's maybe a, a bit odd. But most of us would view baptism, I think, as something that an individual does, and less about something that a church does. But I want to say on this doctrine of the church series, this is not the way the Bible talks about baptism. But I want to show you today that the Bible is actually very clear about what baptism is and why we should get baptized. And I have two main points that I want to hang all this on this morning. And the first is this, baptism is a water ceremony ordained by Jesus. So why get baptized? The first answer to that question is because it's a water ceremony ordained by Jesus. Flick back to Matthew chapter 28 for me, verses 18 to 20. And here we find Jesus instituting baptism as a lasting ordinance for his church when he gave the Great Commission. Matthew 28, 18 to 20 says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So, what does the one with all authority in heaven and on earth command his church to do? Make disciples. 
That's the short answer. Proclaim the good news that Christ died for sinners and rose again to prove it and passionately appeal for people to turn from sin, to repent, and to believe the gospel. That's what Jesus himself did in his own ministry as he proclaimed the gospel to those before him. And what's the first thing that Jesus wants us to do with disciples we make? Baptize them. Immerse them in water in the name of the triune God. That's what baptism is. That's, in fact, what the word means. In the original Greek, here's the boring bit. I'll wake you up in a second. Uh, the original Greek verbs bapto and baptizo and the noun baptismos mean to immerse, submerge, or dip. They're used elsewhere in Greek literature, not even in scripture, but elsewhere in Greek literature to describe the dyeing of fabrics, the dip, dipping of sheep, the scuttling of ships, and even the drowning of persons, I have to say, though that will not be what happens today. There are also these words used in the New Testament to describe two things in particular. The physical immersion or submerging of a person in water, and occasionally they're used to refer to, if you like, a spiritual or a symbolic immersion of a believer either into Jesus himself, sounds odd, or into the Holy Spirit. And that's the way it works. Romans 6 is an example of that, Colossians 2 as well. Now, immersion in water, therefore, is what we should have in mind when we read what Jesus ordains when he says, of the disciples you make, baptize them. It's dead simple. I'll explain what, that, what it actually means, baptism, a little bit later. But for now, the main thing that's important to note is that the church that Jesus established did as Jesus instructed, baptizing all who believed and immersing them in water. <clears throat> now, the book of Acts itself describes many, many baptisms. Right? Acts 2 uh, that we read from earlier uh, gives account of how 3,000 people heard the preaching of, of Peter concerning the Christ, the King, Jesus, and responded when he says, what, they said, what should we do? He said, repent and be baptized, every one of you. And 3,000 were. Acts chapter 9 gives us the account of Saul's baptism. Acts 10, Cornelius and his household. Acts 16, the Philippian jailer and his. And tons more. Okay, it's there all the way through the book of Acts. But if you want to zero in one, on one example, let me give you the one from Acts 8. Where Philip, one of the disciples... <clears throat> approaches this chariot uh, that has been ridden by an Ethiopian official. And he says, oh, what's that you're reading? Any good? And I'm paraphrasing. And uh, he said, well, actually, I don't understand it. And they, uh, can you explain it to me? And he was reading from Isaiah the prophet, okay? Uh, a passage that very clearly points forward to Jesus. Now, Philip clearly explains the gospel to him. And I want you to notice that his explanation of how one responds to the gospel must have included baptism because we then find the official saying in Acts 8, 36, look, here is water. And when he does that, he's not holding up a wee glass or a bottle of Evian. No, he is pointing to a body of water clearly because that's what they go down to and that's what they come out from. Acts 8, 36, he says, look, here is water. What can stand in the way of me, of my being baptized. But as well as that, uh, in addition to the strength of the evidence and acts of believers being baptized in this way, the New Testament speaks in a way that very un, like undeniably assumes that every believer is a baptized believer. 
So take Galatians 3, 26 to 27, for example. In speaking to the church in Galatia, Paul assumes that those who have believed have been baptized. Or how else could he say, so in Christ Jesus, you who are children of God through faith, for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. How can he say that of them if they haven't been baptized? Or if baptism wasn't a thing for believers? In short, in answer to the question, why get baptized? The first part of our response is because Jesus ordained it as this, and the early church practiced it as such. Now, that then makes it, when you think about application, that then makes this a matter of obedience for both an individual believer and a local church. What does it mean for a believer first? Well, it's really simple. If Jesus charged this church to baptize all who believe, all who believe must be baptized. It's as simple as that. And the question is today is, have you? It's the obvious application question from this uh, sermon. Now, the vast majority of us have, and that's a wonderful thing. And we should praise and thank God for that because it's evidence of your love for Jesus. How do we know that? John 14, 15 says, if you love me, Jesus says, you will obey what I command. Meaning the majority of us have expressed our love for him and our obedience to him by being baptized. But some of us have not. And if not, why not? What hinders? Uh, it is a clear command. Now, some will give theological reasons related to infant baptism. We'll get to that in a second. But I'm struck how many put off baptism for a whole raft of reasons that actually do nothing to mitigate against what is ultimately disobedience. Some say, oh, I've just, I've left it too long. I've been a Christian for about 20 years. But late is definitely better than never in the case of baptism and obedience to Jesus. Goodness, there's nothing to be embarrassed about whatsoever when it comes to baptism. Everybody rejoices in it. No matter how long it's been between your point of conversion and the act of baptism itself. We delight to see us walking in obedience. Some will say, I don't like standing up giving testimony. That's okay. As Pierre-Yves said earlier on, you don't have to. The I do in the pool is enough. Some say, well, that's not necessary for salvation. So the debate gets a little bit more theological. They say, so it doesn't really matter. Well, as I'll show in a second, you're right. It is not essential for salvation. But none of us can say it doesn't matter when it absolutely matters to Jesus. So please, if Jesus commands it and his church practices it, let's not put it off any longer. Ideally, it should be done soon after conversion. It doesn't need to be done imminently, immediately after, but soon. Some may liken it to baptism, to putting a ring on a finger in a marriage ceremony where the vows have been made. Baptism serves like the commitment that where in a marriage you commit to your spouse through the vows that you make. The putting on of a ring around the finger of your, of your newly wedded spouse is just a sign of the covenant that you've made. In the same way, baptism serves like that. It is a sign of the covenant that you have made with the Lord God. That's what it means for a believer. But what does it mean for a local church? Well, in a sense, it's just a kind of mirror of what we said about the believer in terms of application. If Jesus charged his church to baptize all who believe, 
all churches must baptize believers. Now, some of you are saying, well, obviously, but is it? Is it obvious? Now, churches throughout history have had different views on this and have uh, strayed into error on this, either by assigning greater meaning to the act of baptism than Jesus does, or by performing it on people that you cannot actually designate as disciples. Now, the first is the mistake that's made by those in the Roman Catholic Church that I grew up in. I uh, went through First Holy, I went through baptism, First Holy Communion, uh, First Confession. I was an altar boy ringing the wee bell, all those kind of things. And I remember some of the liturgy and the things that are said. But this, in, in the Catholic Church that I belong to, in the past, it, their teaching confers saving efficacy on the act of baptism. Here's what I mean by that. So the catechism of the Roman Catholic Church would say, in response to the question, what is baptism? They would say, baptism, and this is a quote, baptism is the sacrament by which we are reborn to God, cleansed from original sin and personal sins, and made a member of the church. In other words, saving grace is conferred on the one baptized. Are you with me? Now, you ask, well, how can a baby be saved without believing or articulating the gospel? They can't even string a sensible sentence together until they're at least 13. <laughs> ah, says the Catholic Church. That was a joke. Personal faith in the individual baptized is irrelevant according to the catechism and the dogma of the Catholic Church. So saving grace is what they call an ex opere operato act, by the work worked, or by virtue of the action, which is very, very different to what Jesus says when he says, go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So to confer on baptism more than what Jesus ordains in baptism is, in our view, as Reformed Christians, not even talking about being Baptist just now, as Reformed Christians, it invalidates Roman Catholic baptism entirely, which is why those who hold to a baptism in a Catholic church must be baptized to be obedient to Jesus. Okay? Now, it would be absolutely great if what they said worked. You know, by the work worked that we could bring people into the kingdom of God and save people from their sins. Goodness me, if ministers like me could confer special saving grace on people by pouring water on them, irrespective of their assent or understanding, to cause them by my work to be saved from hell, you would not find me here. I would be traded in my Volkswagen Charan for a fire engine. Or one of those things that you see the police use to disperse riots. People in Edinburgh would see me driving past and say, oh, there must be a riot somewhere. And they'll say, no, no, that's just Liam from the Baptist church. <laughs> Down the street, he's just scooshing people into the kingdom of heaven again. <laughs> now, I joke, but when we baptize believers, we are carrying on the tradition ordained by Jesus, whereby a person who has already come to saving faith has the sign of that faith applied to them symbolizing outwardly 
the change that has taken place inwardly. You with me? Some are. The second way that churches get this baptism thing wrong is to apply it to those who have not yet believed the gospel, namely infants. As is the case in Presbyterian churches, for example. Now, let me say this before we get into the thick stuff. I do not put pedo-baptizers like Presbyterians in the same category as Catholics. Let's just be clear about that. They are Reformed, saved brothers and sisters. I have many Presbyterian pals uh, in the free church, in other churches, for example, that I count as dear brothers and sisters in Christ, and I love having a good old conversation with them about this. I just think they're wrong, and that's not a bad thing, by the way. They think I'm completely wrong. Um, uh, not on what the gospel is, of course, but on what baptism is. But more importantly, I am conscious that in this day and age, you know, what I say in the next few moments might make those of us, even in our membership, who hold to such a view, and it's 10% of us, in fact, make the mistake of thinking what everybody thinks nowadays, that if someone disagrees with you, they must hate you, or because I don't affirm the position that you're in, that I don't love you very much. That is not true. God knows I do. But we as a church do have a position on baptism, and it's really addressed. In the 13 years even that I've been a pastor here, we've only preached on baptism once and never delved into this kind of stuff. So it's not like we do it all the time. This, in fact, might be the last time I ever do it. <laughs> Let's see how this goes. But we have a position on baptism, and I believe it must be, not just for the sake of clarity, but actually, even because for the sake of our young people, this has been a matter of confusion and debate. So for pastoral reasons, I address it and don't avoid it. We shouldn't avoid it. Uh, let me give you two main reasons why we don't believe infant baptism, and then we'll get back into what the Bible says. It's one, the answer is because it's not in the Bible. That's the first thing. It's not in the Bible. Now, Scripture nowhere advocates, commands, or records a single infant baptism. Therefore, it's impossible to prove or to support it from Scripture. You have to go to tradition to justify it, but infant baptism isn't even recorded until historical records until around the third century where Tertullian brings it up. You have to go to, and my, and my Presbyterian uh, friends, of course, I'm hearing them right now, they're saying to me, ah, but what about the household baptisms, Liam? And I say, yeah, you're right, there are five of those in the New Testament. And there are, in Acts 10, Cornelius. Acts 16, Lydia. Another one later in Acts 16, the jailer. Uh, Acts 18, Crispus. And then 1 Corinthians 1, 16, in the case of Stephanus. But not one of those texts regarding household baptisms mentions children at all. There's no mention of a child, no mention of an infant. Do you know what each one does mention? Faith. Go do some homework. Look these passages up. Baptism is applied to all in those households. I'm not denying that in the slightest. But the all in those passages refers to those who have heard the gospel and believed it. So even if kids were present, that, those texts explicitly say they were capable, then for, therefore, of believing and actually, uh, actually of being baptized. That's why they were. Now, my Presbyterian friends would then say, oh, well, let's try another angle. Let's talk some theology. Let's talk about continuity between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And now three quarters of you are like, what on earth have we come to this morning? Bear with me. 
They say, let's talk about theology to try and argue for it. There is, they would say things like, there is an essential continuity of the covenant of grace from Abraham to Christ that applies to all of us. Yes, and absolutely. All good Baptists agree with that. Two, the sign of the covenant in the Old Testament is circumcision. I agree entirely. The corresponding sign in the new covenant is infant baptism, which believing parents should apply to their children, not to say the child is saved, but in the hope that they will. Well, I don't agree. What is important to say on that from that Presbyterian perspective is that they're not conferring on them some saving act. They still believe, okay, Presbyterians would still say that child, though they have a special grace to them by being born into a Christian household and being baptized as infants, as they would say, they grew up, but they still need to take that salvation for themselves through faith in Jesus Christ. Of course. That's why we're all in the Reformed tradition. The question I have is, how is that any different to my kids? Who are brought up in a similar way? Well, that's when it comes into the whole question of how does New Testament baptism correspond to circumcision? And the answer to that question is it doesn't. Because the church is a completely different entity to the nation of Israel. I know it's getting thick. I told you it would. But under the old covenant, God formed and grew a people by physical birth into a distinct ethnic group. That is Israel. You were physically born into it. And belonging was marked, uh, belonging was signaled by a physical sign, circumcision, but only for the boys. But under the new covenant inaugurated by Jesus through his death and resurrection, the fulfillment, who is himself the fulfillment of the old, by the way, God forms his people by his word into a spiritual entity made up of people from every nation who are born into it, not physically through families, as Jesus says in John, as it says in John 1, not by a husband's will, not physically, but spiritually through faith. And so the sign of belonging is not physical, but spiritual. It is circumcision, but it's as Jeremiah 31 says, it's circumcision of the heart, which is a text which clearly corresponds to faith, because it refers to knowing God, having his law written on hearts, and obedience related to that. The cutting of the heart, there is conviction of nothing else. And that circumcision is only given to those who have been born of the Spirit and forgiven of their sins. And who is that in the New Testament? Is it the children of believing parents? No. It's believers. It's disciples. Those who have repented of their sins to trust in Jesus and who resolve to live with heart, soul, mind, and strength out of love for God by obeying the commands of Christ. Look into this, friends. You know, I have a ton of books that I could give you to have a look at this or point you to. I, I, one thing I will do, I, you know, my, my pres, I keep thinking, my Presby pals, they've got plenty of books that they can put in your hands as well, and that's great. You know, I'm not asking you to believe everything I'm saying. I'm asking you to go away and consider whether or not what I'm saying today is true. Whatever's not, chuck it away, disregard it entirely. But if it is true, it makes a massive difference in how we as individual believers follow Jesus and how we as a local church obey Jesus. It matters massively. So dig in, study, clarify for your own convictions. It's not a small matter. Baptism matters because Jesus, uh, obeying Jesus matters. If you are looking for an introduction to this subject, then on the bookstall, we've got a book called Why Should I Be Baptized? 
It's three pounds. It offers you a little introduction to this. There's even a little bit on infant baptism at the back. It's three pounds, but you can take it for one pound today, okay? I didn't ask Keith for permission to do that, but let's just do that. It's one pound today, all right? Speak to me later, Keith. It's all right. Don't worry. Uh, another one is uh, Bobby Jameson's little book, Understanding Baptism. That's not on the bookstall, but very helpful. It's a small version of his bigger book, Going Public. Uh, Biblical Foundations for Baptist Churches is a good one. I can give you all of these later. Believer's Baptism, this is actually Paul Reese's book, so I'm very tempted to give it away, but I shan't. Uh, Believer's Baptism, this is if you want a really meaty, in-depth study to all the covenantal stuff that I've just been talking about just now, there is a very, very significant chapter right in the middle of that. So, if there's a doctor, can we, thank you, Claire. It's very hot in here. Could you open up those doors, please? Do you have a chair you could bring in? A wheelchair. Thank you. Okay, so why get baptized? That's what we're talking about. (laughs) It's a water ceremony ordained by Jesus for believers is basically what we've said. Matters for what we do and why we do it. Second point I want to show you, having said what we think it is not, let me be super clear on what it is. It is a sign, point two, of commitment, of a twofold commitment uh, to Christ and to his body. Okay, a commitment made by two parties, one a believer and two a church. And in essence, baptism is a means by which a believer says, I belong to Jesus and his body. And a church says he or she belongs to Jesus and to us. That's what it means. So by being baptized, a believer communicates their commitment to Christ and his body. That's what our friends are doing in the waters shortly. We do that by word. Baptism is accompanied by a verbal profession of faith, by testimony, or by the simple I do. We are announcing we are his. And we publicly identify with Christ even in the act of baptism itself, like the Lord's Supper was as we looked at that last week. Tangible things in our hands that we can see and touch and taste. Similarly here, we can see and the one baptized can tangibly feel that water washing over them. It's a visible act, a non-verbal sermon of the gospel and our union with Christ. And that's because the stages of baptism correspond to the key fact of the gospel, namely Christ's death, which is communicated in the person standing up in the water confessing him. Christ's burial indicated by the fact that we put them completely under the water and then raised to life again, uh, therefore encouraging us to recognize that Christ was raised from the dead. In baptism, the gospel is preached and we hear it with our eyes. But it doesn't just preach what the gospel is. It says what it means for us as believers. It says for each of these folks being baptized today, they're saying, I am united to Christ in this death and resurrection. His death is my death, death to my old self. His resurrection is my resurrection. He provides the newness of life that I get to live out now. Not on account, like Jake was saying earlier on, of the, of the good things or my, my best efforts but on the basis of the power of the Holy Spirit working in our lives. As Romans 6, 3 to 4 says, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? 
We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. So in baptism, our union, our oneness with Christ through faith and his acts is proclaimed. But there's another layer to it. In baptism, a believer also identifies with Christ's body. What happens in the New Testament to those who believe and are baptized? They are added to the church. We saw it in Acts 2. It says that each of those who believed and was baptized from that point lived their lives as members of one body in love and in fellowship and on mission as Acts 2, 42 to 47 says. Jim Turrent preached on that just a few weeks ago, and I labored the importance of joining a church when I preached on the metaphor of the body a couple of weeks ago, so I won't say more than this. Believing in Jesus means belonging to his body, and baptism and belonging correspond. It's the means by which we formalize our membership of the church and the thing that we appeal to, even if we're transferring in from another. And that's what brings us to the perspective of the local church. The church's perspective on baptism as an act of commitment. By baptizing, a local church communicates its own commitment to Christ and the one being baptized. Because a church like ours, we baptize out of obedience to Christ. It is how we guard the gospel and stay healthy. You know, it's the means by which we protect ourselves from the curse of nominalism, which in this nation we have seen, the curse of an unregenerate membership. One author puts it like this, baptism is like skin, providing protection because prior to baptism, the faith of every member is tested. And by obeying Christ's command to baptize professing believers, we communicate our commitment to the purity of Christ's church. Now, I get this, it's not absolutely fail-safe. Christ himself says so. Sadly and personally, we know that to be true. There will always be those who give the appearance of being saved, even to the point that we think, sure, let's baptize you, but who later in life will demonstrate by their ungodliness that they haven't been. But through a careful membership process, we work hard to do our very best to maintain our collective commitment to Christ. Now, there are always things that we can do better as a church. I think we can work hard to include more members in the in the, in the process, Matthew 16 and 18 tell us that Christ has given the keys of the kingdom to his church. So the church has authority to make public declarations on Jesus' behalf, making baptism the means by which we all recognize a person's citizenship in the kingdom, making the Lord's Supper the means by which we all recognize each other as ongoing members of the body in good standing with each other, and how church discipline is the means by which we all appeal to the wayward to recover, to grasp truly the glory of the gospel and to live in a manner that's consistent with our confession of Christ. That's all we're doing. But baptism is the means by which a church communicates our commitment also, not to the just to the gospel, but to the one being baptized as well. We commit ourselves to them. So when we're in the pool later on and you hear me say, on your profession of faith, we baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. What do you understand by the word we? I'm not referring to, the, 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 to me and Ben, who's going to be in the pool with me later on. We're not referring to them. We're referring to us as a church family. We, the members of Charlotte Chapel, baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it's designed to give real assurance to us. 
and we commit ourselves to them not just on the point of their baptism, but on an ongoing basis too. Because the New Testament makes it clear that baptism serves not just a sign of entry of a believer's initial commitment to Christ, but a sign to test a member's current commitment to him. Like Romans 6 that I just read from a second ago. Paul appeals to one's baptism in the context of Romans 6 to say, don't go on sinning so that grace may increase. Live differently. Live in a way that's consistent with your baptism. Or Colossians 2, where Paul appeals to the commitment they've made in baptism in order to urge them to live their lives in him, rooted, built up, and strengthened in the faith. So baptism is not just something to look back on and think, wow, that was a really significant moment in my life. It's actually something for us to measure our current commitment to Christ by. Am I living today in a way that is consistent with the gospel I professed at my baptism? That's what it means. Well, my time is up, clearly, but I hope you've been helped to see what it is that Christ ordains in baptism and why it is a vital aspect of the doctrine of the church. Uh, baptism isn't just the act of a believer professing faith. It is also the church's act of affirming that professor's faith in obedience to Christ. So why get baptized? Because it's ordained by Jesus. Because it's a sign of commitment to Christ. And it is a sign of commitment to his body. Let's pray. Our Father... Thank you for this time to consider this. Let everything here that is chaff, nonsense, not of you. Lord, please just blow it away. But let us, if it is true, engage with it deeply so that we might be clear in our convictions whether or not what we choose to do is a matter of obedience or not. And we pray that you would bless us in these moments, even as we have the joy of baptizing these friends. This is a delight this is the affirmation of the faith of these brothers and sisters, and we as a church family rejoice in what we're about to see concerning the gospel and their commitment to Christ. Lord, bless us in this time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, before we come to baptize these friends, let's stand and sing together. There is one gospel.